0: This episode is brought to you by Paris Gourmet, delivering specialty foods and ingredients right to your restaurant, bakery, and bar. Learn more at parisgourmet.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring interactions from drug studies in a laboratory. If this effect is
1: as big as he's saying, somebody should have discovered this long
0: before he did. To global wisdom on avoiding hangovers. Beber cerveza antes de tomar vino no previene los Beer
2: before wine, you're going to be fine. Wine before beer, you're going to be queer.
0: To the novel recipes developed by an Indian American family deep in the heart of Texas. And then my mom's sort of coming to America and learning that uh, white parents love to melt cheese on things to get their kids to eat it. And she was like, this is genius. <laughs> Be sure to subscribe to Meat in 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Massimo Bottura. Hi, this is Amanda Cohen. This
3: is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda
0: Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Misty Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs on Heritage Radio.
1: So I showed up at 5.30 in the morning. I actually worked all day. They kept telling me to go home and I kept telling them I only got one day. I'll be here. And then, you know, oh, well now we're just going to clean down. Uh, you can, you know, you're welcome to go anytime you want. No, no, I'll, I'll clean down with you. And I stayed until the, I, you know, I got there at the beginning and I left at the end of mm-hmm. the day. And that was really important to me because I only had one day. That is pastry chef Milton Abel second
3: of Anderson and My Yard in Copenhagen. And the subject of the short film, That's My Jazz. Our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman, and I am here with, for the second week in a row, Caitlin Friedman. Good morning, Caitlin.
2: Good morning, Andrew. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I am dying. I know. The allergies are bad. I woke up this morning, and I, I, before I had even achieved
3: consciousness, I mean, people can hear this. It's going to be a short intro. Yeah. The pollen is... There was that M. Night Shyamalan film... Yeah, The Happening. The Happening, and it <laughs> yeah. turned out, sorry, spoiler alert if anybody cares, but yeah. it turned out
2: it was like trees were the villain or something like that. Yeah, well, actually, humans were the villains, and the trees were getting back at them.
3: Yeah, well, touche trees, because I am dying. <laughs> I mean, I look. it looks like I just found out somebody died. Like, I'm, like water's pouring out of my eyes. Yeah. I can barely talk. I'm fighting to not have to blow my nose on the air. I'm sorry, listeners. This is horrible. How do people... How...
2: What? What did people do before Clarendon and... I think they just suffered. It's horrible. I kind of liked it because I woke up this morning with this crazy, like, I don't know what this tone is in my voice, but I don't know. Husky. Husky. I'm you gonna sound st- husky. You have a pack-a-day voice. I'm going to stick with it. That is what For I call... as long as we have this horrible pollen. <laughs> that is what I
3: call a pack-a-day voice. <laughs> Which is unhealthy, but it is a sexy sound, yeah, Caitlin, yeah, uh, well, our guest today, I should say is Milton Abel the second that's a great name, not junior the second. We'll explain why he goes by that in the show, okay it's very deliberate, it's very charming. I love this guy. I never met him before, we have a lot of people in common. He came up in uh well, got very well at Per se and the French Laundry, uh, spent time at Noma in Copenhagen. He now has a, um, I guess you'd call it a, a bakery or a patisserie in Copenhagen that's paired with a uh, coffee brewery. It's one business, it's called Anderson and My Yard. He's also the subject of a film, a short film, that had its premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival called that's my jazz and it's the story of Milton and of his father who was a legendary jazz musician and singer
2: that sounds kind of great
3: yeah it's a really um, it's a really terrific short film uh it's already showed at the festival and I would have aired this sooner but we were on our mid-season hi- or between season hiatus so I couldn't air it until now but it's a great interview regardless and I hope this film will find its way onto some kind of on-demand or streaming availability or make the festival circuit or something. So if you have a chance to see it, I highly recommend it. I also wanted to say, Kate, we haven't done this in a while, but we've had some good dining experiences lately. Our, our old friend Rocco Spirito has returned. A lot of younger people may only know Rocco from television. How can I keep talking like this? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm surreptitiously uh, tending to my...
2: Can I just pick it up? I Yeah, I, go I, ahead, Caitlin. So Rocco's at the Standard Grill now. Yeah. And we could not be happier because he is one of our absolute favorite chefs. In the world. He's so talented. Yeah. And having him back in the kitchen made us really, really happy. Yeah. His food is always spectacular. Yeah, it's tremendous. Just great. So that was an experience we yep, had. Yeah, that
3: was a great one. uh. I recently went to Narcissa. Oh, as did I. As did you, separately. Now, people may remember, uh, at the beginning of the year, Angela DiMayuga, who's now involved with the Standard Hotel as the, I think, director of food and culture. One of the restaurants under her auspices is Narcissa at the Standard in the East Village in New York. The chef there is Chef Max Blockman. I hope I'm saying that right, Max. Max Blockman Gentile. G-E-N-T-I-L-E. I, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. But he does a dish there. It is a whole branzino with an, a habanero bear blanc.
2: Yeah, I went with people that ordered this dish, and they loved it. On my recommendation. Yeah, and you're, I had the morels, which I really... Oh, no, head of the woods. Yeah. And also roasted. He had. You know what? The vegetables are really good, because the roasted cauliflower as a main was... It was just so satisfying.
3: Yeah. Well, this... Branzino dish I wrote to everybody involved with the restaurant The next morning It's like It's amazing You have to like spicy food to eat it But I said to somebody I said like jean George in his prime Would have been happy Mm -hmm. To have made that dish It's beautiful It's delicious The spice is perfect The fish was perfectly cooked So bravo to you Max For that dish It's just killer And then we had a Cinco de Mayo celebration last night we went to M.P.O. You're glaring at me. I'm not glaring at you. We went, to, <laughs> we went to M.P.O. Midtown, Alex Stupak's restaurant, with some friends. I love the food there. They had a special menu. It was really cool. Instead of like socking everybody with a special prefix menu, they went the other way. It was like a menu of snacks, mm-hmm. uh, tacos, small
2: plates, no entrees. Which was perfect, because then you just could have tons of tacos, which was, which were great. And just hang out yeah and we had a great time couple of rounds of margaritas yeah and as you remember i had a glass of red wine i remember that so well because <laughs> guess guess I, where that glass of okay. red wine ended up everybody go ahead no go ahead well i i
3: gestured at one point in the evening uh-huh knocked over my red wine yeah and it went
2: all over you yes and people i was wearing a white shirt so it's like and it wasn't just like a little bit. It was like almost half a glass if not more of red wine down my pants. It was like I it's like yeah. <laughs> it was like in my chest, down my pants. It was terrible. In my shoes. It was terrible. It was terrible. You you did a magic thing. You yeah. went to
3: the you went to the restroom.
2: Yes, and I cried. Did you cry? No, I didn't cry. You came back. <laughs> I wanted to cry, but I didn't you cry. You came back with uh, your white blouse.
3: Yeah. There was not a not a, not a a scintilla of red remaining.
2: You're making a joke. But it was completely... Soaked. Soaked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. So from a distance, you probably looked totally normal to people. No, I'm sure I didn't. Are you actually still mad about this? No, I'm just, you know... It just was one of those I'm sure everyone knows It's just one of those things Where it was like an event And it was just a little bit Tiny bit hard to get past it Because I was really uncomfortable But the food Getting back to the food Which is the most important thing No, I
3: think the most important thing Is that you were angry
2: about this all night But yeah. accidents happen I know Well, it wasn't like I was angry Everyone at listening you. to, was to this like... Has had
3: a moment Where they've either knocked something over Yeah Or been the victim of a knocking over
2: yeah, either way, it's not good, okay. but it's fine. I wasn't furious. I just was uncomfortable. But the food was really good, and the company was amazing, and I love the friends that we went out with. So it, it ended up being like, it was a really good night. Okay.
3: <laughs> well, I wanted to share those dining experiences. I should say none of the people we're mentioning are, are you know, they're not sponsors. They didn't pay for this. We just no. We had some great dining experiences yeah. recently and we wanted to share that with people because there's a lot of food out there these days anyway caitlin yeah with that mm. i don't know that i need to say anything more about our guest but again this is uh, an interview i did about a week ago with milton abel the second he was in new york to attend the screenings i think there were five of them At the Tribeca Film Festival, which runs over a period of weeks here in New York City at various venues. He is the subject and star of the short film, That's My Jazz, directed by Ben Proudfoot. He grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. And this is mainly, the film is mainly the story of him and his dad and his own relationship to fatherhood. Hmm. And... As you learned in the movie, I don't think we actually say this in the interview, he has stepped away from restaurants. The reason he now has this sort of bakery coffee concession, which is getting ready to open its second location, was to create a life for himself where he had normal hours so he could be home on a relatively normal schedule, what to most civilians is a normal schedule, with his kids and his wife. Hmm. That's why he stepped away from the restaurant world. Anyway, we talk about that in the interview as well. And with that, I'm going to now send it over to my interview with Milton Abel II. Do you like Milton or Milt?
1: Milton. Milton. Milt was my dad.
3: Milt was your dad. Even yeah. though you have the junior, that was your... That's it. And right.
1: my mom's like, the second, the second. No <laughs> one knows who Junior is. She's uh, She put it on my birth certificate, actually, as the second. The
3: sec with Roman numerals? With Roman
1: numerals. Really? Because... How royal. Yeah. Ex- that, you know, they say the same thing in Denmark as well. The woman laughed at me when I get, went to get my well, uh, like, name registered. She's yeah. like, who is this guy? <laughs>
3: So you 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 maintain that you respect that. Yeah,
1: because uh, she's you know everybody was pretty old when I was born. My dad was fifty five, mm. and all of his friends were that age or mm-hmm. older. And yeah. she didn't want people running around saying, "Oh, hey, junior, hey, junior." She wanted him to call right. me Milton because right. that. That was just important. That's yeah. dad's name. Yeah. That's my name. Yes. That's why she named me that way. Yeah. So that it's a little weird to call somebody, hey, second, hey, the second, hey, the second. Yeah, so right. So that just, was her, like, very, road, that was a roadblock. <laughs> she's a smart woman. <laughs> smart woman.
3: Okay. So obviously you're the center of this new movie that we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, uh, for I'll have, I'm sure, described this in the intro, but the movie is, it's not a very long film. It's, it's about 15 minutes long. Exactly. It's, it's, it's a short um, Reader's Digest version of your path to the kitchen uh, and also your relationship, I would say, with your dad and also with fatherhood.
1: Absolutely. I think it, really the best way I've heard it described and the way I like to say it as well is it's a, its a lot about this, the sunrise of my career and the sunset of my father's life.
3: Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So let's first talk about your life if we could. Yeah. <laughs> Is <laughs> first of all is it weird? For, I mean, you've been in the you've been in the public eye for a little while, but to see yourself, you know, on a movie screen, to have your life there, you talk about some very personal, you, know, you talk about life and death and about you know, fatherhoods for a lot of guys a very loaded issue. Yeah. Um just seems to be the case. Yeah. Um is it weird for you to have so many people like watching your story the way they are?
1: Yeah, a little bit unexpected when they were Making this film, I had no. I, I'm just asking myself, who am I? Who am I? Right. Why? Why are they? Why? What are they going to get out of this? Yeah. What, where is this going to go? What's this going to be? My, right. you know, people ask. My mom asked me. My wife asked me. You know, what? What are they going to do with this? Do you know yeah. what's going to happen? Or this? And I. Said, I know. I don't. I have no idea. I'm just. You know, I just showed up and I talked and, yeah. and 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 we just took it from there. How did you know the filmmaker? I met him. We were introduced to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, he was looking to make a film. Uh, called uh, love letter to Copenhagen. What mm-hmm. what they he they do a lot of I uh, um, I don't know how to describe their work normally. I would say it's uh, like uh, like they uh, do things for big companies. Okay, uh, like industrial uh, stuff. Yeah, yeah stuff yeah. like that, and uh, that's uh, I think a part of their a part of their repertoire. What they do. And he loves Ben Proudfoot, the director. Mm -hmm. He loves to do uh, like a side project when they're off on location. So they were in Copenhagen. They had been in Lisbon before and they made a film called Love Letter to Lisbon. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was like their passion project that they did there. So they booked a couple extra days while they're in Copenhagen and they were let's do Love Letter to Copenhagen. And I was just going to play a small part in that, like just you know make something to represent the food aspect of Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. I had just I was opening a uh, small coffee roastery with my partners uh, called Anderson and Mayard. Mm-hmm. Uh, Great name. I want to talk about a good that one. name. Yeah, uh, I want uh, to
3: find out later why you surrendered your name to a scientific
1: word. I'd say, uh, <laughs> but we'll get I, to that. We'll so get to that. I think that plays to my humility, maybe. <laughs> yeah. But uh, they. Um, they wanted to make this love letter to Copenhagen yeah. and just going to play a small part just make some food and represent you know that's mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. and i think they were having a hard time getting danish people to open up on camera it's january it's dark it's been dark it's cold people are just you know they're not they're not going to be super open during that time of the year yeah. it's actually quite a change when the sun comes out of copenhagen during the winter and mm-hmm. copenhagen during the during the summer yeah and so they just uh They were having a difficult time. When we met, we met in this cold, uh, dark, really not much, no electricity uh, construction site of a cafe, coffee, roastery, bakery. And I think Ben was wondering, why am I meeting this American chef in Copenhagen? You know, that sort of thing. We started talking and he asked me my story how, how the hell did you get here yeah. and i just you know you, I can't start my story without talking about my parents my mom and my dad and uh, and how much they gave me and then come i had such a special childhood uh had to start there and then i he left the meeting he said uh, you know we're not making love letter to copenhagen we're making a film about this guy and I mean that just blew me away.
3: Yeah. Well, you mentioned your your wife's sort of I don't know if it was skepticism or concern. You know, there's always this thing when somebody wants to film something, especially in the last 15, 20 years with reality television. Like, are they going to try to make it melodramatic? Are they going to look for you know, are they going to look for you know, scandal? Are they going to look you know, all that? Was there like a trust? Did you? Did they have
1: to? earn your trust did you just have a good feeling right off the bat I just had a good feeling right off the bat and I was I just try not to think too much when I was doing the when I was doing the interview Mm -hmm. you know and uh, Ben had this setup with the camera so that his face was in the lens so I wasn't looking at a piece of equipment. I hmm. was looking into his eyes. Really? Yeah, he was doing the interview. He was sitting off to the side, Yeah. And but his face was in the lens. Is that
3: something he devised,
1: do I, you I, know? I, I've said, never heard of that. One of the producers said to me, it's a lot easier to not do that. So the fact that you yeah. found that... Uh, to be uh, not disarming, but yeah, just make made everything really comfortable. Yeah, he said that that was that's the reason they do it. You know, it paid off. So it know? wasn't
3: all that different from like the way you and no, I are here just, across the table. Exactly from each
1: right, other. man. I'm just talking to you. You yeah. know, I had done some things before for Vice. I had done some things before for like Munchies and things like that. Yeah. So and there, it's, it's just I just couldn't have told the same. I couldn't have said it the same way if I was just looking into a cold piece of equipment, but mm-hmm. I'm looking in this guy's eyes. He's super, he just talking me, talking yeah. me through it, asking me all the questions. And uh, Ben and I really, um, I think we worked really well together straight away. We clicked like mm-hmm. uh, just it just, I mean, to sound cliche, it just really was okay. We just started flowing. Yeah. And then I, you know, most of these things I've never said out loud to anyone. Uh, anyone no not my family not my mother not my sister no one you know and um I just took it as an opportunity to to I don't know what I who's gonna see this I didn't really know so just and and I'm never gonna see them so to hell with it just say what you want to say and it's it it just all kind of came out how long
3: was the actual interview
1: was like six eight hours yeah like we just sat there in this cold i mean this place is cold like you can see my breath did it in in one one day one day one solid uh one solid seating for for the interview and uh i felt so bad uh frederico conforti the uh, editor man he had his work cut out for him after that because i was probably all over the place and this and that and the other and uh you know just just uh, you know i i could go off on a tangent, but he pulled it together just great.
3: Well, to me, that means that somebody's actually really thinking in a live way. You're not getting canned answers, yeah. you know? Did this kind of, you say you'd never said this stuff out loud to anybody. Did it sort of allow you to process elements of your life in a way that was like therapy?
1: Do you think? I think it's more, it, it, you could say that or you could call it a release. A release, to hear I, it out loud. I think these things all the time. They drive me. Um, I have the regrets, right? Deeply, yeah. You know, and uh, you can't take it back. Yep. Uh, you can't do it any differently. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if they're always racing in your head, they're always racing in your head. Like they they do. They really do. Mm-hmm. Um. And if you say them out loud, maybe they'll stop just being inside of you all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And maybe not seem quite as when stuff's inside, right? It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, yeah. and often out of
1: all proportion to reality. And it just gets a little bit less heavy. Yeah. Or maybe having uh, a stranger uh, smile, nod, right, understand, yes, uh, feel for you, yes, um, relate. Yeah, that helps a lot. Okay. You know, somebody else sh- shares that same. Mm-hmm. Those same feelings. There's somebody else in the world who shares these same regrets, has yeah. had these same experiences, yeah. has done the same thing I have, or and more. Yes. And, uh, you know, they're out there, and mm-hmm. I, it just makes you not. It then it doesn't feel so like such a big deal. Right. Um, okay. So let's.
3: I want to. I don't want to spoil the film for people, yeah. right? But. Um, you know, uh, what's the old Miles Davis line? The notes you don't play are just as important as the Isn't one. That, yeah. I want to talk about the notes that aren't played in the movie. Okay, cool. Okay? Yeah. So I'm going to obliquely refer to stuff that happens in the movie. Sounds great. I'll but, try not to give it away, too. But talk about some <laughs> of the stuff that's in there. I mean, yeah. we'll talk about it, but we'll, we'll be a little abstract and all that. Okay, first of all, um, it's called That's My Jazz. Uh, you, your father was a legendary jazz musician. Do we say and singer?
1: Yeah I, I I yeah you could say that for sure jazz musician jazz bassist yeah singer, but he also did front man he did
3: they show it in the movie he did things with his voice he did it all man that was almost percussive i would call it it yeah. wasn't like he was singing a tune yeah. but he was amp- he was harmonizing with what he was playing
1: he was a fantastic singer as well mm-hmm. uh um he man one of the most impressive things he did was uh, his scatting oh yeah oh man he'd scat and he and the bass would sing the same notes at the same time. Mm-hmm. So he'd be moving up and down the bass playing and, and just singing the exact same notes he was playing yeah. uh, uh, simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And it's like they were just the same unit. Um, just performing, just singing together, yeah, uh, flawlessly, yeah. And I don't know if you, uh, you know, anybody who's played an instrument, singing and playing at the same time is just so hard. I mm-hmm. have to. When I used to play, I used to have to look at my hands in in order to sing and play, and it would still just could never do it. Could never do it. Yeah. And this man just did it effortlessly, and uh, he had a fantastic voice. Um, he sang for, um. I uh, used to sing the Star Spangled Banner at different events in Kansas City as well, which is a, a, a really tough tune to sing as well, mm-hmm. really wide range. Yep. So as well as being a great bass man, uh, he was a great singer as well.
3: Great. So what at what point in life, you talk in the movie about, you're ba- I don't know, what you're like a stage kid. Yeah. Kind of like an army brat, bar baby. Yeah, that's bar my, baby. That's the term.
1: That's what my mom. Where mom you got you it. got
3: like brought around. You you talk about falling asleep on the stage. Oh. so that was just your life, right? At what point did you did you become aware of, you know, that just not that this wasn't a a usual life, right? That you were in the middle of this very special thing, and B that your dad wasn't just. He was your dad, and you talk in the film about the fact that he was able to do this rare trick of being both a perform, you know, a very dedicated performer and being, you know, a present father. But um, when did you get a sense of who he was? Like, do you remember what age you were, or what it was that brought that home to you? No, I,
1: honestly, I can't remember. I, I think if, I, maybe it wasn't until I reached more into my my teenage years, or yeah. and or more of an adult, that yeah. the real gravity of who who he was hit me. Yeah. But he was always. I mean, we were all, we were just, well, we were just one unit, you mm-hmm. know, and, uh, dad and I started playing together. Uh, I was, I learned to play piano and, uh, we had our first gig together when I was six, uh, turning seven that summer wow. at the youth stage in the Kansas City Jazz Fest. That okay. was like 1992. Uh, we played together as a piano based duo until I was around, I think 12, 12 years old, something like that. And, um. So then we were something together, you know, You know, we, I mean, right. but I did not realize how much of a life my father had before me, I think, until I reached adulthood, mm-hmm. until I could really, yeah, mm-hmm. until I reached adulthood.
3: Was there a name to that duet?
1: Me, Him and I were, yeah. we were Milton Milt too. <laughs> there you go
3: what was he like as a collaborator? I mean, he was your dad. You were a kid.
1: Yeah, he was good. He, he, uh, my parents were the ultimate enablers, ultimate encouragers. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to do this? Okay, we'll do this. Let's Mm -hmm. get lessons. You want to do lessons? Okay. So he didn't teach himself. You got, no, I went, yeah, I had a great man. Uh, I had, well, my, uh, my classical train, my classical piano, uh, teacher was, her name was Mila Portman. Mm -hmm. Um, and then my jazz guy was uh, uh, another jazz legend called, named Russ Long. Okay. And I'd go over his house, he'd write charts for me, yeah. he put the, the the songs in a key that I could play them in, and, yeah. and kind of made them in a way where a six-year-old could play them, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, we'd do some practicing together, and then we'd go home, dad and I'd go home and play together. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, that's pretty much that's okay. that's pretty much how it came, and then and then you know if you just wanted to, you know, uh, it, it takes a lot. You gotta you gotta you gotta go to lessons. You got yeah. there's so many logistics to it. Get picked up, get dropped off.
3: Listen, my daughter plays four. My daughter's 14. She plays four instruments, and it's like incredible. It's and when she doesn't practice, it shows. Yeah, you and, know, I sit in. She's doing drums now, but I sit in on her lesson, and you know if she's practiced every day versus you know practice really hard for two hours the day of the lesson exactly there's it a big sh- there's difference no, you
1: can't fake it you cannot fake the hours and you gotta go and you gotta go you gotta you know it yeah. just it's a, it's, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of things to it so yeah. they just uh, made sure that if we wanted to do something we could do it right you know um, when I was in fourth, fourth gra- third grade um, my mother saw that there was an audition for uh, the Missouri Repertory Theater for A Christmas Carol which mm-hmm. is like their seasonal Christmas show and she says, "Oh, uh, you want to try this?" And I and I had been slowing down, uh, slowing down the piano a little bit. So you know, you know you want to try you want to try this or whatever. You know, let's yeah. see, see how it goes. Yeah. I said, "Yeah, yeah, I want. To, I'll try that." I said, "What do I have to do?" And of course, it says in the in the paper, you know, needs a one minute monologue. Yeah. Well, she just I, I know I, I had none of that and no training or anything. She mm-hmm. just said, uh, "Just get up there and talk about yourself for one minute." And that's, you know, that's it. She took me to the audition. I got I took a timer with me. Okay. Michael, <laughs> set it for one minute, <laughs> set this timer down. <clears throat> did you like stick the landing and have an oh, ending? Man, or did yeah, you just exactly. stop talking? Stick the landing, put the foot back. But did you have an actual
3: ending or did you no, just stop talking? <laughs> and then the just end of stopped. It,
1: I remember at the end of it they asked me to um at the end of it they asked me to tell a joke. Yeah. You know, I don't remember what that joke was. Probably very terrible, but uh, you know, that's it. I didn't get the part. Okay. But I was also very young and uh, the next and so then when I got out of there my mom asked me oh did you like that and did you did how'd you feel and I said oh it's great you know and do you want to do that well yeah yeah we could try that I you know or whatever yeah I want to do that okay and then the next time I was in uh, or not too long after that I was in acting lessons she got me acting lessons I took acting lessons for for a very for a very very long time cold reading classes all this, you know, she just got me into it, and we started doing it. Were you good? Oh, I was
3: all right. you think I was you, all were right. natu- you had a natural.
1: I think just in general, uh, it it it. I was all right, you know. I could, uh, I I was all right. I wouldn't say, you know, um, you know, just so young. So how much yeah. can you expect out of a fourth grader, or right. a fifth grader, or a sixth grader? But um, as I started to get older and let myself go, I remember I played a I played a human, like a kid for a couple roles. Like, you know, always played, you know, you always play a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got this role as Sam I Am in this... Uh, Thing called uh, Green Eggs and Ham. It mm-hmm. was a it was a mixture of an opera. Uh, we had a an opera singer. Okay. And it's just a two two person cast. Okay. An opera singer and me, and I played Sam I Am, and the opera singer was the you know the person who does or the thing that doesn't like Green Eggs and Ham. Yeah. And it was a jazz opera. Everything was written by uh, Robert Capelo, okay. uh the composer, and that was the first role where I didn't play a human being and I realized that this is not me on stage this is not me on stage this is something else this is a character I'm not playing a, a human being I'm not a kid I don't have to be cool I don't have to be anything I'm just this thing right and that made things click oh like it was just like an, a, a moment an awakening an epiphany yeah and yeah th- and then the, from that point on I was a lot better
3: and were you better in like like were you like a methody person who would get in like come up with like a backstory for your character or would you just
1: kind of get a vibe and just go with it? I just imp- approach it with innocence, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. You know, just uh, just just approach the role with innocence mm-hmm. and just go from go from there. And okay. I think that's what. Um, you know I got I, I, I did well I got a lot of roles and I, I did that until I was 21 years old really yeah and so uh, you know musical theater and uh, different industrial blah 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 you know all yeah. these things inside the acting world in Kansas City cool and I think that that is what was attractive uh, about me was that innocence that I approached the roles with interesting
3: yeah, yeah if, I mean we just met you're you have very expressive eyes I mean, you don't seem like... I don't know, you maybe you have a poker face. You don't strike me as someone who
1: does. No, no, I'm just being real. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. what this whole thing's about. That's yeah. why I think the film is so great. Yeah.
3: No, its I mean, it comes through in the movie. Yeah. I mean, I felt like I when I came in here today, I felt like I'd met you before, but yeah. you know, but, but I had it. Um, it comes and goes in like two seconds in passing. You mentioned that your first introduction to working in restaurants was in college. Yeah. What did, did you go to college for theater? What did you go to yeah, school for? Yeah, I went for, for
1: theater, but I... uh you know, I didn't. I didn't do a good job of it. <laughs> I didn't I? Didn't uh, apply for classes early enough. I didn't get any acting classes. Mm-hmm. Um, I had. I was working to pay for college. Kitchens uh, or front of house. Kitchens. Okay. And uh, you know, just this this classic bar: wings, burgers, potato skins. Yes. You know, frying it up. Yep. And uh, dishwashing. My first. My first role was washing dishes. You know, and. I just love the people yeah the people were great they were down down just just down-to-earth people a lot of fun partying we're partying party and party and a great time it's just this classic college bar yeah you ever seen the movie waiting it's like that I've never seen that oh movie. man it's. Uh, I you know you're not I mean it's that movie yeah you know that was the first place that I worked
3: now you were around the music scene as a really young kid, yeah. but was, you know, a lot of people transition from music to cooking. Yeah. It happens. I think there's a lot of real good reasons why it happens. The hours work great. The hours, it's expressive. Yeah. It's, if if you've played in a band, there's a real similarity between that and the dynamic of a kitchen, Yeah, you know? Um, Did you feel at all, I mean, again, you were a little kid when you were a a bar baby. Yeah. (laughs) But did you feel just sort of innate a comfort in the environment of a kitchen from having spent a lot of time around bars and clubs and places like that? For sure. You also,
1: did. the work was very straightforward. Right. You know, it, you know, it just do this, mm-hmm. do that. The uh, instant gratification, mm-hmm. I think, is another big part of it, mm-hmm. and uh, and just it was just easy. It was great. It was just it was. Just you took a, to it pretty well. Very very naturally, yeah. super naturally. And yeah. then I also had a friend who when I moved back to Kansas City because I kept getting calls you know while I was at college oh, we want you to come mm-hmm. can you do this role and it was in Kansas City and you know uh, and I was in Columbia, Missouri and so I was just like oh you know I'm, I'm off at college I can't mm-hmm. I can't do the role you know and then I'm not getting any acting classes. I said I gotta get out of here man I gotta go back to Kansas City I gotta I got I got people who want me to be in roles and I'm missing out on everything mm-hmm. I should you know I should be doing right now. Why am I going to school to learn how to do this when there's professionals who are asking me to do the shows right now? Yeah. So, you know, let's just go back and do this. So my buddy when I moved back there, he was cooking and I was just like, "Well, you know, you're the same age as I am and you don't have any training either, so why can't I do this?" Yeah. And that was it, you know, and and then the, the people at the restaurants that I worked at were so great. You know, you could work in the morning when you had uh, rehearsals during the night sure. and when you had uh, matinees, you could yeah. work at night. So yeah. it just, it was a great balance, you know, and I'm not the type of person who can really sit and do nothing or just like, I just, I gotta have a job. I gotta, gotta be going. I yeah. gotta move forward. And, and I also don't want to, I just want to, I've been really lucky, uh, to have the example of someone who did what they love their whole life hmm and that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, that's that is lucky um, you uh,
3: Take a job with someone who turns you on to um, Through this there's so many people around your age who Not even around your age. It's like a 20 year span of people for whom the French laundry cookbook like casts a spell <laughs> Right.
1: It did that same thing for you me.
3: You got, it was like someone opens this up and it's like you're like through the looking glass. You're, it's a, can you just speak for a minute to this? Cause yeah. you described in the movie that you'd never, this was like a whole different
1: world from what you'd seen. Yeah. I mean, this is a world, a world away from wings and burgers. Yeah, <laughs> And, uh, you know, I just wanted to do a little more. Um, and so I walked, there was a restaurant behind where I was working called the Grand Street Cafe. And I just, you know, I had been walking around trying to elevate where I was working uh, in Kansas City, trying to move up to the next level of cooking. But, you know, I'm, I'm giving everybody a resume, not I'm giving everyone an application, mm-hmm. not a resume. hmm. And so I kept getting rejected. You know, yeah, yeah, we'll call, don't call us, we'll call you. <laughs> and right. uh, I finally walked into this place and, and uh, I got to talk to the chef. And that was it. His name was Michael Magliano. And a really special thing is he's actually in the film. Yeah. All the images. That was actually him. That I was wondering him. that. Yeah. And, uh, so
3: how long ago was the moment that we see? How? The moment that, you know, you guys kind of reenact. Of of you, he's like cutting like Julianne and you guys are looking at a book. When was that?
1: Yeah. That was in, that was in 2003. So, okay. Yeah, along 2003,
3: 2004. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the only reason I was wondering if it was actually him in the film because I'm like, this has to be.
1: He happened to be in Los Angeles at that time and I just reached out to him. I said, hey man, I'm doing this thing and... Uh, they asked me to fly to Los Angeles to do just a little bit more because we didn't get all the fo- they didn 't get all the stuff uh, all the footage that we needed, or, or you know we, we thought we got everything we could get. Uh, like we squeezed these three days yeah. in Copenhagen dry. We yeah. worked so long, I so many it. hours a day yeah. and, uh, and it was, but it was a joy the entire time i can 't state that enough. Mm-hmm. it was a joy the entire time. And then after they had done like a rough edit, Frederico had done a rough edit. He said, oh, we just need a little bit more." And so they brought me out to Los Angeles. Mike was there and I, it just totally worked out. He came and we, once again, you put us in the same room and we're gonna start firing on all, on all cylinders together. And mm-hmm. that's what happened inside of this, uh, this, this space yeah. um, where, we were, where we were shooting the film uh, in, in, in Los Angeles or right outside Los Angeles in a, in a friend of mine's kitchen. Yeah. Um, and man it just you know when we were i went to when i went to grand street he 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 brought me back we sat down we talked for a little bit I didn't even understand what a stage was, but he offered me a stage for a day. He said, come, we'll work together. And I was like, oh, do you want me to quit my other job? Because I'll quit my other job. And he's like, no, no, no. I'm just trying to see how you work. And I didn't understand. I didn't understand that I didn't have the job already. So when yeah. I walked in, I was like, you know, <laughs> right. setting up my shop here, you know, getting ready to uh, just, uh, I was ready to be there. Yeah, And um, he's just a really... inspiring man he just uh he is a natural mentor Mm -hmm. it's like he he put his arm around me and and walked me through the steps of what it meant to work in a kitchen Mm -hmm. and got me excited and then he went to another restaurant in kansas city called uh the american um I had an opportunity to either stay where I was at at the Grand Street or to go to the American and, and work there. And, you know, I I was sitting there with my mom in the in our kitchen and trying to make this decision of what I was going to do. Yeah. Because, you know, one place is offering you more money to stay and the other one's giving you the opportunity to, you know, grow and, and do more and work mm-hmm. on a higher level in Kansas City. But both restaurants were great. And I just said to her, I said, you know, I really feel like this guy's going to take me places. I'm going to go with Michael to the American. And just one of those crossroads that you take, Mm -hmm. and it really uh, made all the difference in the world. So how long were you guys together all in? He left in 2004 to go to the French Laundry. Okay. Uh, late, late 2004. He mm-hmm. got an opportunity to, uh, you know, he showed, he, he got an opportunity and he showed me where he was going and, you know, showed me the book and told me about this guy and the legend of that was Chef Keller at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know all the things you would expect, you know, yeah. had never, he never had a culinary school education. Yeah. Found this place, this, this place in Napa Valley yeah. and built it into this great restaurant. Yeah. And, you know, I just said, well, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. Give me a year. I'm going to get my skills up, mm-hmm. and I'm going to get there. Mm-hmm. And then that, that, that was it, pretty much. Okay.
3: And this was only four or five years out from the publication of that book, so it was still pretty... It was pretty
1: fresh. Pretty fresh. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, it was and, still huge. And And they were... I had no idea what rankings were, but I think they were at number one, 50 best, that, like 2004 or yeah, 2005, know. And three, yeah. you know, it's all those sorts of things, you know, yeah. but who are we to be ranked in this and that and the other, but, yeah. you know, to, to some it's very important. Oh, yeah. And I mean,
3: sitting where you were sitting and looking across, you know, to California and thinking about this place, that, that would have just made it all the more. You just mentioned your mom again. Yeah. Okay. The movie's mostly
1: about you and your dad. Yeah.
3: Can you just tell me a little about your mom?
1: Oh, man, she's great. Uh, What's her name? Linda Abel. Okay. Linda Irwin Abel. Where's she from? She's from Carthage, Missouri. And, uh, you know, she really made their relationship happen. Uh, My father, um, where he achieved most of his his fame and acclaim was with his first wife. Her name was Betty Miller. Mm -hmm. They were a piano and bass duo uh, Mm. from the time he got out of the Army in... uh, in the fifties, he was just supposed to go to Kansas City for three days, just be there for three days, and then he was going to go back home to Philadelphia. My dad's from Philadelphia. Oh,
3: really? So is mine.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a great place. And uh, but he got taken away to the army because he's stationed in Fort Leonard Wood. Came to Kansas City, supposed to be there for three days, but everybody said, "Oh, you got to meet this woman. You got to meet this woman, Betty Miller. Got to meet this woman. She's hotness. She's the hotness. She's the hotness on the piano right now. She was it. She was. She was just tearing it up." Mm-hmm. And if you listen to her music, you can hear it, man. She was incredible. Um, they started working together, and then they fell in love, and then they were the premier group in Kansas City for the 60s, 70s. Toured around, played in New York, wow. Las Vegas, California, uh, but but predominantly in Kansas City out of their own decision to yeah. just that's where they were going to be. They yeah. held court at a place called the Golden Horseshoe for 15 years. It was a piano bar people would come to see them. The type of place where you're there, you're drinking, you're having a good time, but when they're playing, you're listening. Mm-hmm. And it was really the spot. A really incredible place. And All of Kansas City were in love with Betty and Milt. Everyone. And my mother used to come up on the weekends to listen to them play. She loved them both dearly. Mm -hmm. Um, Betty died in 1977 uh, of stomach cancer. And she had a rather... I I don't know exactly, but what I can imagine is a public decline. You know, everyone's... She wanted to play till the day she died. Mm. So everyone watched her fade. And including my mother and she just had this feeling that she was going to be the one to take care of my father because he was going to need that care after losing Betty sure 25 years of marriage on stage a very public love hmm and you know when you connect on multiple levels it's just extremely deep yeah. you know it's just like.
3: Yeah, there's no sanctuary. No, man, it's yeah.
1: everything. It's, they are your being. Yeah, you, you can't know, throw and, yourself in your work as an escape because that was your work all... Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Everything yeah. is you and her. Yep. My mother wrote my father a letter expressing her deep, deep sorrow for the loss of Betty. And um, a few, I don't know, the time, I can't remember the timeline, but uh, not long after, she called him and asked him, you know, uh, you know, because he had the white pages then. <laughs> so she you know, where you? You know, she gave him some time and yeah. where are you playing? I think it was a couple of years. It was 1979. Yeah, she died in 77, around 79. Mm-hmm. Uh, where are you playing tonight? Oh, I'm playing here. I'll save a table next to you, next to the bandstand for you. And he somehow made the connection that she was the one who wrote this letter. Mm hmm. They went out after the after the gig, and all Dad did was talk about Betty, <laughs> and it and she didn't find this out for a while. But th- that happened to be their wedding anniversary oh that they went gosh. out on. I mean, this is storybook stuff. She continued to pursue my father, and she just made it happen. That was it. And uh, you know, they were the she. My mom came in on her birthday. They Dad came off the bandstand one night. They embraced. He came off a break. He went back on, and he played You Are the Sunshine of My Life. Mm. And that was the beginning of the beginning. Oh, my. Well, that's, yeah, talk about storybook. That's it, man. They were married in 80. I came around in 83. Betty had a child from a previous marriage. Her name was Betty Jo Miller, fantastic player, Um, another musician, just amazing. Mm -hmm. So Dad thought he couldn't have children. So in 83, three years after they were married, I was the biggest surprise in the world. Wow. And uh, everyone was so delighted. Mm-hmm. And uh, when my sister came along in 89, uh, that another huge surprise. My mother was just the, is, the greatest uh, advocate I could ever have in my life for both of us. Mm-hmm. When I was like, th- uh, two things. When I was... Very young. We were watching a documentary on Charlie Parker. Yeah. And I looked at my mother. She, I think I'm three or four or something. Very young. Very yeah. young. I, you know, Mom, I want to be famous like Charlie Parker. And my mother looked at me and said, Milton, you're already famous. And I think those are really strong words to say to a child. You know, you don't have to be anything. You are already something. Mm-hmm. And that sticks with me. Yeah. My mother was listening to one of Betty and Milt's albums, and she began to cry. And uh, I asked her, you know, why, why did Betty have to die? And something that my mom said to me that she doesn't know if it was too tough or, or what it was, but she said, um, so you could be born. Mm-hmm. And both of those answers are, first of all, powerful, but second of all, encouraging. Mm-hmm. You are something, and you are here to be something. Mm-hmm. And that's what's just what type of woman she was. Well,
3: I, in my mind, I, there's like a dotted line back from that to the first thing we talked about, which was this royal name that she gave you.
1: It's 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 just... I would be nowhere without her. Hmm. She deserves her own film.
0: Paris Gourmet delivers the finest specialty imported and local foods directly to chefs. For over 35 years, Paris Gourmet has sourced specialty foods from around the world. Their Meadowlands headquarters services the New York tri-state area. Paris Gourmet delivers Bermont butters, cacao Noel chocolates, Ravi fruit purees, cuisine tech ingredients and bon pâtissier viennoiserie to your kitchen. Paris Gourmet brings the world to your doorstep. They're close when professionals need them most. Learn more at parisgourmet.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Diane Stemple. And I'm Elena Santigade, and we're the hosts of Cutting the Curd here on Heritage Radio Network. Featuring interviews with makers and mongers and everybody in between, this show is a downright funky look at the world of artisan cheese. You can find cutting the curd wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork dot org.
3: Welcome back to the show. I will get you back to the rest of my interview with Milton Abel the second in just a moment. But first, Caitlin, I do need to just mention there are links to all of these things I'm about to mention in the bio of my. Instagram feed for this show. The handle is at Podcast. First of all, in less than two weeks, on Monday, May 20th, I will be attending and participating in the LA Chef Conference. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the second year they're doing this conference, but it's the first year that it's been part of the LA Food Bowl, which is a month-long series of events. The lineup, as I have mentioned previously on this show, is spectacular. And I will be doing a panel based on Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll. It's an all-star panel. Barbara Lazaroff, co-creator of Spago and other restaurants. Susan Feniger, one half of the Border Grill restaurant team, along with her partner, Mary Sue Milliken. The legendary chef, John Sedler. Anyone in L.A. will probably know that name. Russ Parsons, formerly of the Los Angeles Times. And Michael McCarty, who just celebrated the 40th anniversary of Michael's. So again, you can link to the event and get tickets via the bio on our Instagram feed. I also just want to mention, Caitlin, Hmm. speaking of the 90s or the past, I wrote an article recently for Taste Magazine. They did a, a 90s, they call it an issue, even though it's strictly an online publication, a 90s issue. And they asked me if I wanted to contribute. I've been having a lot of fun writing there. And I wrote a piece about the Chef cookbooks of the 1990s which you're kind of smiling as i say this but it's we were both around for this yeah it was a big part of my career you were a pr person at the time in a publishing house Mm -hmm. but the 90s were the time when these sort of giant monolithic in a lot of ways vanity projects for chefs yeah fifty dollar books even back then yeah uh a lot of them didn't make much money or any money a lot of them lost money but i wrote a piece sort of examining that phenomenon That piece is available on tastecooking.com. And I think it's an interesting read because, you know, chefs can still publish cookbooks. But the type of cookbook that I'm talking about in that uh, piece, which, uh, you know, the most more recent examples would be things like maybe Sean Brock's cookbook or the Man Racer cookbook that David Kinch did. Uh, they're few and far between today. It's very hard for people to sell those books with good reason
2: because a lot of them didn't make any money. Yeah, but some of them are so lovely. And a lot of them, I mean, I worked on two of Jean-Georges' books. And yeah, I mean, there was beautiful photography and it was like a collector's item a lot. But, you know, the recipes are they're kind of a treasure because a lot of them are he doesn't make them anymore and it's that's a good point point. and so it's it's kind of a i don't want to say keepsake because that sounds really old-fashioned but i'm happy i have them and I, I i liked that period of publishing well that's a great point because that's one of the defining things about cooking right
3: it you it's there for the moment it's eaten it's gone mm-hmm. and those uh dishes like you said they're gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, they maybe they're on a menu somewhere in a file or mentioned in a review, mm-hmm. but that's it. So these books do capture a moment in time. I remember very distinctly David Kinch saying to me that when he did the Manresa cookbook, by the time the book was published, because it takes about a year to do the production and everything after you write it, that he had already moved on from a lot of food
2: in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, it was already a memory, mm-hmm. you know? I mean... And if you look at the Union Square cookbook, right that the union square was such a you know happening place one of the the anyways it was just kind of this incredible location yeah and then they did that book around it and now it's at a new location right so all of those kind of memories of that experience of that building were captured in that book yeah well i'm convinced whether they know it or not the main
3: reason chefs want to do books is because of the ephemeral nature of what they do Mm -hmm. you know that it's it's not like writing. It's not like uh, painting. It's not like filmmaking. What chefs do is here and it's gone. Mm-hmm. And, and cookbooks are one of the few sort of uh, shots at immortality that chefs have. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly. Anyway, wanted to mention all that to you guys. And with that, I'm going to return it now. And again, apologies for the way I sound. There is absolutely, Caitlin will tell you, I'm doing everything I can to to moderate this sound as I sit here talking. But these allergies are just insane. You're anyway. Co- you're
2: covered with a layer of green. <laughs> meaning pollen. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, the pollen. Jeez. Okay.
3: <laughs> here you go. I'm now going to return you to the rest of my interview with Milton Abel Second. I hope you enjoy the rest of it. I don't know that it was even mentioned in the movie. If it was, it went by me. You just mentioned a few minutes ago he was in the army. Yeah. How did that experience, if at all, find its way into your upbringing?
1: Well, not too, I mean, not too much. Okay. I mean, we were always, yes, sir, no, sir. But it would have been that way anyway because yeah. that's just midwestern values yeah right and uh i think dad daddy just went into the army because that's just something you did mm-hmm. at that time yeah and uh, uh maybe it was being an african-american in the in that time as well maybe it was you know he, he i think he was one of 12 or 13 or 14 children I, as it's a, a big family wow. big big family and um so and they were all and many of the able men were all in the army or yeah. in the in the navy or in the you know and and so uh, you know I think it was just something a part of how they how they came up. Yeah. And uh, for us there was no military type of uh expectation or mm-hmm. anything like that. It was just good old Midwestern values and yeah. that's it. I mean so your
3: work ethic Mister, all that that yeah. would have been the case regardless no matter what cuz yeah. they were working so hard yeah, right. you
1: know they were working so hard i mean my mother was my father's manager okay she would iron all of his shirts uh-huh. she kept him looking sharp we walked out of the door looking so sharp all the time you know and mm-hmm. all of our our clothes were always clean i went to a school where we had uh uniforms yeah. uh, from 5th grade from kindergarten until 5th grade mm-hmm and my shirts were always pressed my pants were always clean my uniforms were always tight and mm-hmm. that just gives you a certain amount of confidence oh yeah going out the Did door you ever wear a tie? every day yeah a tie yeah. Yeah. badges yeah. you know as student yes. excellence blah 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 yeah, yeah. red sweaters all that yeah. so you know i i you could call it military but we were just
3: Oh yeah, I'm not, to, I'm not trying to force an it. Yeah, I just no, not, no. I just it was something I didn't know until you said it. I don't think is it in the film. I don't think it's mentioned.
1: Anything. No, no, I don't, I don't think so either. Yeah. But he, but out of that, I mean, came came everything. You know, he met sure. Tommy Flanagan in the okay. army, who's uh, who's one of the the great jazz legends. Mm-hmm. And it took him to Kansas City. I mean, none of this would have happened if he hadn't have been transferred to the Fifth Army Band. Life is and amazing. It's these. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. I think about how I got to Copenhagen and all the decisions I did to get there. Sure. And like, you know, you just make one different decision yeah. at the crossroads, yeah. and uh, and your whole life has changed. Totally. It's the same thing with this film. You know, there's been these very few times in my life when I've said, "You need to do this. This is the right. This is the right decision. You mm-hmm. have to do this." Yeah. And I'm standing in this this cold place, construction site, all the stress in the world to open up and got to get this bakery open got to get this coffee roastery open god we yeah. got to do it we got we're so behind we're so behind oh uh, let's take three days out and make this film yeah you got <laughs> to do it yeah i said this is an opportunity i'm gonna do this yeah
3: so can we talk about the french laundry for a minute let's do
1: it you get there yeah um
3: well first of all i'm not spoiling anything because i don't really think it's to- how, did, how did you how did you that's a coveted assignment for a cook right yeah even, probably even more so back then, because there are more restaurants now that are perceived to be at a similar level in this country, right? right. So at that time, how did how, you get how you make it happen?
1: I gave, uh, or Michael gave me uh, Chef Keller's email. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't want to tell anybody else to do, <laughs> do this, but I, I got it and I, I wrote him. At that time, I just wrote him an email. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm, I'm Milton Abel. I know Michael Magliano. Dropped his name so many times. I'm Mike, I know Michael Magliano. Yeah. I, uh, I don't have a culinary school education, but I understand that's similar to you. Um, I'll sweep the floor. I'll clean the toilet. I'll work in the garden. I'll do whatever it takes, but I want to be a part of your restaurant. And I did that once a month for about three months, trying not to annoy but trying to show persistence, right? Respectively persistent. There you go. Yeah. And you know you got a stack of resumes that are as as tall as you know whatever on your desk. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to you got to f- kind of maybe put your resume in there a few times to make it go to the top mm-hmm. of the stack. So I fi- figured eventually he would either get you know annoyed and tell me to stop, or he would say, "Who is this guy?" Yeah. and right. So Michael told me, he texted me, he said, uh, Chef Keller asked about you today. And I was like, oh, you know, then I was like, okay, okay. maybe." This something. was after like three or four three. Of these, three yeah, this three months. Three. And I was like, oh, well, maybe something will happen. And then I got a call from a woman named Shing Chin, who was the sous chef on pastry at that time. They had no pastry chef at mm-hmm. that time. And uh, they asked me to come out and uh, do a stage. I had... Actually, I had a reservation to eat at the restaurant with a friend of mine. She was moving to San Francisco, and she needed somebody to help drive with her across the country. Mm -hmm. And I had agreed, and we were going to finish the trip by going to French Laundry, eating, seeing Michael, uh, because we both worked with him at the time, and then I was going to fly back. Just She needed help driving. You can't drive across the country like that by yourself. So we loaded up in her Honda Prelude. I've got my knees in the dashboard because her whole life is in this thing, Mm -hmm. and we just drove cross country. And it just, you know, when they called me for the stage, I was like, "Oh man, I'm just, I'm gonna happen to be there during this time." Happen to be in the neighborhood? Yeah, I'll be. Perfect. (laughs) Right. So we just did it. Yeah. And um, then when I flew back, so I did one. So I ate the night before, Mm -hmm. and that was just um, a fantastic experience. Man, we they. We had a nine o'clock reservation, but they knew that I was coming to Stas the next day and that I was going to start at 5.30. They had a cancellation at 7.15 and they welcomed me in at 7.15. We walk in the door. There's a gentleman named Larry Nadeau, who's I, a legend there. I know Larry. And, yeah. you know. He was
3: the, what are they,
1: I guess, maitre d technically. Yeah, d But right. he was there almost from the very beginning. From the very beginning. Yeah. And you know how, the, you know, like uh, Chris Carter, the great wide receiver, uh, he's, he's not the tallest man in the entire world. He's not maybe the fastest athlete in the entire world, but he has the biggest hands. And that just means, you know, you're going to be a wide receiver, right? Mm-hmm. That's, you know, this mm-hmm. is perfect for you. Larry Nadeau it was like born to be a maitre d'. The man has the biggest hands. His handshake is so powerful. Yeah. And his demeanor is so thoughtful and caring and Mm -hmm. you know just the same thing I don't know you but I feel like I'm a part of your family you're welcoming into this welcoming me into this restaurant
3: sorry to interrupt for one second but Larry Nadeau what was amazing to me about him is that the French laundry for a lot of people can be a very intimidating place to come eat it's almost like going to the White House and um, Larry was expert at popping that balloon and trying to get people because he was such an everyman he, didn't, he wasn't one of these haughty, fine dining people. You know, We both know what I mean by that. Exactly. There are these guys who put on such airs when they work at some restaurants. Larry was such, he was like the guy next door working at the French Laundry, and he just like set you at ease. He made people able to enjoy, people who weren't used to eating like that, the ones who were making these pilgrimages, the ones who were spending the, the money they had to do that meal like that once a year, he made them feel comfortable. You've been waiting for this for yeah. three months. Yes. You've
1: made the reservation. You built it up in your brain. You, you don't want to make a mistake. or this right. not, As I a diner. Do the, as right. a diner. As someone yes. paying as a, a fortune. Yes, exactly right. But he, he understood all that. The first thing he said to me was, Hello, Mr. Abel. How are you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're gonna treat you really nice before we put you to work tomorrow, <laughs> and that just said so much. Yes, you know, you that's know. It. I expected that's to walk it. in and be like, able party yeah. you too. Thank yeah. you. And you he's, know, that. he's not.
3: He's not at that restaurant anymore. No, he's not a, anymore. He's a special guy. Anyway, I'm sorry no, to interrupt no, that's your story. But he
1: deserved that time to be spoken thank about. Thank you. Thank you. And he did the same thing, man. I mean, we're me and this woman are looking at. Well, first of all, the table when we walk in. You know, there's very few empty tables there because they're going through the, trend. you know, it's 715, so not the whole dining room's not sat yet. I see a table with two champagne flutes on it. I was like, we're sitting there. We're sitting there. Are we going to go sit there? Yes, we're sitting there. <laughs> yeah. You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. We're looking at this book of a wine list. You yeah. have no idea what we're doing. Yeah. And, you know, he just, they just take that, well, you can see our eyes are just like, what, what is, this? Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't speak French, <laughs> you know, right? that sort of yeah. thing. And, yeah. and, and he just takes that book out of our hands and says, "You know, we'd uh, we'd really like to treat you to the wine pairing this evening." You know, just that exact same thing, just yeah. disarming you, making the, the 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 and and controlling how much you drink as well, because. Uh, in a way that's really positive because I got to work tomorrow and you could easily be overwhelmed by the experience and yeah. just get lost in the, in the evening. Oh know, yeah. And forget how,
3: how important tomorrow is. I needed like an IV after <laughs> the first time I <laughs> ate there. I
1: couldn't. Like, I was like well, in the, bed with like three bottles of water. The food overload is enough as well. Yeah, you yes, know, yeah. I mean just that and it was just a fantastic experience. And then the, the stage was, uh, after that, I felt I felt like these these people were taking care of me, and I feel comfortable. And I just was able to do what I did, you know, yeah. what I what I what I could. I just, just do what you do. Yeah. that's it. Just show up yeah. and do what you do. So I showed up at five thirty in the morning. I actually worked all day. They kept telling me to go home, and I kept telling them I only got one day. I'll be here. And then you know, oh well, now we're just going to clean down. Uh, you can you know, you're welcome to go anytime you want. No, no, I'll, I'll clean down with you. And I stayed until the I you know. I got there at the beginning, and I left at the end of mm-hmm. the day, and that was really important to me, because I only had one day before my flight sure. was the next day.
3: Did you feel comfortable there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You I kind
3: did. of, if, I don't, I hope this doesn't come off the wrong way, you kind of fit the pro, I always say Keller hires like G-Men. Yeah. You know, clean cut, you don't see a lot of facial hair in those restaurants. You're not allowed to. Oh, I didn't even know and that you officially. Come as you,
1: you come as you are. You stay as you came. <laughs> you stay as you're hired. Yeah. You know, and... And I think it's important for you to have a certain uh, level of, uh, you know, grooming, whatever it no, may No, but be. that's,
3: you're, you kind of fit the profile of like a Keller sh- chef, cook. And I, I mean, appreciate that. I mean, but I could, you, you kind of, you do. There, if you look at people who've worked there over the years, it's like, I always say like tennis umpires, it's the same thing. You're not there to call attention to yourself, to be a showboater. None of that. No. You none just, of it. You
1: keep it tight. Yeah. And, and you, I mean, you showboat by what you do every day.
3: Yeah. So, this is a, uh, you know, it's interesting to me that you gravitated toward pastry, because, you know, again, you had this back this musical background, you, not just your family, but you yourself, right? To me, if you're going to um, pick one or the other, right, which, savory or pastry, which one allow this is to me, maybe you're about to correct me, but I think most people would say, if you were to say, which one allows for, more spontaneity. Which one allows for more? For example, they change the menu, the savory menu, at the French Laundry, every day. The cooks, for people who don't know, the cooks sit around after service the night before. They have lists of all the, uh, what's available, produce, proteins, or what's coming in. And the farm. The farm, which is, well, they call, I love they call it the garden, but it's their farm, their own farm across the street. Mm -hmm. They have relationships with, what is it, Jacobson's Orchard? Yeah, Peter Jacobson's Orchard. Yeah, like the local, uh, local orchards and whatnot and, but anyway, the idea, but they sit around, the cooks sit around, it's like an academy. Oh. They sit around and they write with the chef the menu for the next day, right? It's
1: really important because it's your section. Right. It's your dishes. You're not cooking someone else's food. Yes. It's, it's, you know, you have that sense of ownership, which is extremely important every day. And also it's extremely important not to do the same thing every day as well. You just get so, I mean, with with talent of that level, you'll just get so bored. I mean, they'd get so bored if they if they had to cook the same sure. thing every day. So, but on, on pastry. The state,
3: on pastry, how, to, how does it work for the pastry department though? Because you can't be, like dishes get invented, and cooks don't like the word invented. Yeah. Dishes get conceived. Yeah. In those meetings at the end of service, yeah. pastry's not quite like you can't be that um, improvisational. It's a
1: production, you know. You've right. got you've got ice creams to produce that right. take you know that need to rest for twenty four hours. Yeah. You've got you know different. You're making cakes and this and that and the other. It just doesn't happen in one day. It takes preparation and it takes multiple days of preparation. So yeah. you know that menu changes less frequently, but. If we had some friends coming into the restaurant, we would do some some dishes for them, something that like, oh, I've only got this much of this, so I'll, I'll, I'll do it like that. You know, when you get down to the end of the strawberry season in yep. the garden, you only got so many, so yeah. we can't put that on the menu, so we'll just do 10 tonight or something mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, that was our opportunity in pastry. To uh, be uh, dynamic every day, you know, and with our cuisine. Mm -hmm. But for me, when I first started, I needed recipes. I had no culinary school education. I had no training. I I couldn't just riff on this or that or the other. Couldn't cook a piece of meat to temp. Mm -hmm. I couldn't, uh, or not consistently, of course. Not to the standard of a place like that. No, no way. And and I had always Mm -hmm. done pastry before in the other places that I worked because all the preparation was before service. Mm-hmm. Everything during service was plating. While yeah. it was pressure, pressure time, you know, that was pretty simple. You know, not, not simple, but it was just very straightforward. Yeah. You do the dish like this. Mm-hmm. The recipe is like this. So many grams of that, so many grams of that. Mm-hmm. And a technique that could be written down and shown and, and, and was very precise and exact. And that's what I needed to be successful in the kitchen. Mm. And now it's... Uh, that's the beauty of it for me.
3: You, in the film, say that you sat... This, this, this was a breathtaking statement to me. That you sat down with Chef Keller and told him you wanted to be the pastry chef of the French Laundry.
1: Well, we were... I was leaving, per se, and going to go uh, work in Europe, in, at Noma. And uh, before I left... You know, I had been working for this man for seven years at that point, Seven, almost eight years at that point. And yeah, seven years between French Laundry and Per Se.
3: this wasn't clear. Okay, this
1: wasn't clear yeah, that it was and, at that point. Uh, yeah. Okay. And so I just wanted to make sure it was very clear to him that I was leaving in order to come back. Mm. I, this was my goal. This is what I wanted to do. And if you this opportunity arose, I really want this. And uh, if you give me that, if you fee- see it fit, I would love for you to give me that opportunity. Mm. And that's that's where that came from. It's not Nobody just sits down with him and tells him, I'm going to do this. I wanna oh, no, I didn't it. take it that way. <laughs> yeah, but a I lot of not. people would
3: be too sort of intimidated to even make that kind of a... He's... I've seen people like who work there. I've seen people like shake in his presence, not that he's doing anything he's, he's just such a especially again you go back you know I worked with him you worked for with him so you were long. there when he was still in the on the line
1: just he was just stepping out yeah just stepping out yeah. and chef Corey lee uh was the uh was the chef de cuisine starting right after yep. i started i started in march and 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 chef. And Corey started just after that. and um, But I had been with him for so long. I mean, the first thing I ever did uh, in Chef Keller's presence was drop hot apple jam at his feet. <laughs> Okay, I was making, i like, trying to push and uh, yeah. pushing and yeah. and I had made this jam and I, you know, uh, consolidation is like a really important thing. Like sure. you try to put something in a container as it exactly fits. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't have like three liters of something in a five liter, so in a five liter container. Yeah. So I had put like two liters of jam in a 1.9 liter container and <laughs> was carrying this hot stuff like... Uh, by the rim yeah. to the walk-in yeah. to cool it Yeah, and he opened the door for me and he opened the door and it hit me and I dropped it right at his feet Can you imagine? And so he just uh, we cleaned it up and he <laughs> and we cleaned it up together and he together yeah, and yeah. and he said he was he apologized to me like he opened the door to me. I'm like, no, chef, I you know I did this. I'm so sorry. Blah blah blah, you know. So after that, everything was easy. I'm right. you know, that's it. That's it. You it's know, it's so just funny the most embarrassing he, moment. You know,
3: it's so funny because when you say he helped, you know, he cleaned it up with you. I remember interviewing Drew Nipporant once, the restaurateur here in New York, and he was telling me about Keller back in the days when he had Raquel. Yeah. And I said, what do you remember about, what do you, re- like if I just say, what do you remember about him back then? And Drew, they never worked together. Yeah. But Drew goes, cleaning. Yeah. You would drive past that restaurant at night after service and he would be cleaning.
1: We all, we. it. He's good like that. It's, he's it's. He's just the ultimate example. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. And if and if you're not going to follow anyone into battle, if they're not racing in front of you and yeah. leading the charge, and that's just exactly how he is.
3: Can you talk to me about? Um, I actually had Matt Orlando on the show. Okay, not long ago. He's a great friend. We were at the ben. Philly Chef Conference together He's like a, a month guy. ago, yeah. and he did the show. It was great. Yeah. But so, can you just talk a a little bit about your experience there, and and B. This phenomenon of all these people from elsewhere yeah. in Copenhagen—it's—it's pretty—it's from outside. It seems pretty strange to me, and I don't mean that in a critical way. It no. just seems to—it's hard to. I totally agree. With it's you. hard to figure out why.
1: Why? Why? Why is? I mean, you here. guys are all
3: talented. You all have great resumes, but like, it's kind of crazy.
1: And how do you? How do you? How do you att- them? Especially
3: given the history of America's reputation culinarily, right? This is 20 years ago. This is unimaginable.
1: You got Portuguese people and Irish people and and just people from all over, all different countries uh, working together in this international kitchen. We're in a different country that speaks a language that is so difficult, but we're all speaking English. Yeah. And you, I, I mean, what must you think as a diner? Come in there, like yeah. everyone's speaking English. You know, like, why it was the last guy? Why are you? Amer- You're here. There's another American here. There's a guy from Germany. There's you right. know, it it just is this melting pot of people inside of this restaurant, all yeah. coming together to work um, in inside of the walls of this like just this just um, I, I don't even know this like trends. I don't want to say trend setting, but just this influential like, forefront yeah. of the cuisine at that time, yeah. you know, and and really creating and defining what the cuisine of uh in in the north was at that time you know setting the standard but also uh inventing them you know i mean Mm -hmm. just uh, what the what the standard or the parameters even were sure and uh man it was crazy it was crazy i just i showed up there with my bags Uh, They were so kind that let me, I lived in the Nordic Food Lab uh, in their basement of this houseboat right outside of Noma for the first two months I lived there because, you know, trying to find a, can't exactly jump on Craigslist, Copenhagen and, you know, try to find a place to live. And so, you know, that was just out of control, staying in this houseboat. The houseboat had like a brass uh, bathtub, you know, that was my bathroom. It's just like, just, uh, you know, no bed, like I had a bed, but it was like on the floor and just, you know. everything everything was was just so different you know and uh, but I always say if you have a place to live and you have a place to work the transition is easy because you Mm. just focus on those two things just focus on work and you can do anything yeah you'll find friends through there and and you'll just grow and 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 everything will it'll just fall into place after that yeah Um, you know this is the first time I've worked in a European style kitchen where you both work lunch and dinner the we made everything every day you know nothing was made there was no you know in the in the in the the laundry like you know you have to make a cookie the day before bake it cool it and then the next day you have to pour the mousse and Mm because we had no blast freezers we had no way to like do things rapid fire everything had to be planned and executed Mm -hmm. in a in a cycle in a in a you know in a succession Mm -hmm. but this was like man i'm like puree and sorrel with and juice and apples and then putting the two together and seasoning them with malic acid what the hell is that and, right. and salt and you yeah. know that I didn't use any sugar for yeah. what I you know and uh, we're making this ice disc with a blast freezer and we're using the Paco Jet and I had always used a churning machine before that and um, you know what it, it's it's you know, you're, uh, those onions are burning. Those those onions are burning over there. Those are, oh, that's how it's supposed to be. You know, mm-hmm. that's you know that sort of it, thing. Was
3: it crazy to you that you could come from French Laundry and per se? And go to any kitchen and have it be that sort of—I don't know if this is the right word. It sounds like it, maybe it is, but a little disorienting.
1: Oh man, for sure. Was it that wasn't, like that stunning? That was wasn't. it stunning to you, no, or were you not mentally prepared for that? No, I was mentally prepared for that. Yeah. I knew that this was going to be difficult. But every—I mean, even going from French Laundry to Per Se, it was—you know—at French Laundry, I was running around. Uh, you know, not running around. Actually, that was. The most calculated and easy, best easiest transition I I had had. I think also because I was so naive and I mm-hmm. had no, and people were so kind and really, gearing me up and yeah. and and building me up and creating me, allowing me to be just a commie, which yeah. is the most basic level of the kitchen, and then uh, transitioned into the demi chef de partie very easily. And uh, you know my chefs were tough. Claire Clark, she was a tough chef, but she was fair and she was excellent, mm-hmm. and she may, and all the people who were. Surrounding me, uh, uh, Courtney Schmidig and uh, and and Shing and all these people who I worked with, Janine Weisman, um, Greg Moscow, all these guys. We were just a great team, so nobody let anybody fall down. Mm-hmm. When I moved to Per Se, uh, you know, Elwin Boyles was the pastry chef. Once again, very tough, very tough, uh, but fair, demanding, strong. But I felt every day it was so much bigger, and I felt for the first part. And even towards the end, I felt every day like I wasn't going to make it. I wasn't going to make it. My section was so busy, I bore a hole into this area where I stood between the oven and the stove and my cooler that I just felt like I just spun around in all day, you know, moving, moving, mm-hmm. moving. And every day I didn't know if I was going to make it for service because I had so much to do, but every day I made it. And that was a great feeling. And so I expected to feel that way when I went to Noma, it's going to be totally different. Get ready. you going to take everything you have inside of you to, 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 you have nothing to fall back on. This is nothing like what you've done before. Right. And get ready to have that similar feeling of, are you going to make it every single day? Do you know what you're doing? Do you know? You know it just was thrilling.
3: Do you ever miss
1: that element? I mean, you've got your own business now. Yeah, I'm a partner with two other people, yeah, uh, and go ahead. I don't. I I feel the same way. You feel the same way. Oh man, where. You know, croissants is that we do a lot of croissants, mm-hmm. and uh, a ba- it's a bakery. You yeah. know, a bakery and a coffee roastery, yep. and it's that that symmetry that we like. You know, great, amazing coffee, uh, made with such care and concern and attention to detail. Amazing pastries, same is similar, mm-hmm. made in a similar fashion. Mm-hmm. But you know, you every morning when you come in at five in the morning, you've set this proofer with. All of your work from the day before inside, mm-hmm. and you can feel it. You think, "Oh, this, oh, these are gonna be fine. These are gonna be good. <laughs> Everything looks great." Right. But I show up in the morning at five in the morning. I open that proofer for the first time, and I'm like, "Oh, everything's okay." Is you this the
3: same thing as like people perform? Even seasoned performers will tell you they have butterflies before they go on 100%. stage. Is it's it be- the
1: same thing? It's because you care. Yes. If you care, yeah. No matter how many times you've done something, you're always gonna have that feeling. Yeah. Because if it goes wrong it hurts you so bad. You know, you've disappointed people. Somebody's coming, even to the bakery, somebody's coming to, ha- It's either a, whether it's the person who is their destination spot yeah. who heard about it because someone at NOMA told them to come and you got to try these baked goods, and if it's yeah. not there or it's not on point, you've disappointed them. Right. Or even to the guy or the lady who this is their morning stop. And they always come and do this every single day. And this is their office, and they sit here on the Wi-Fi, and they have a great cappuccino and a great croissant. And you've disappointed them because they're not there. Mm -hmm. It's it's both it's both sides, you know. And I really actually want to serve both sets of people, Mm -hmm. you know, sure, the day to day and the destination. Sure. You said earlier when I said it in passing, the name of
3: the it's it's Anderson and Mayard. Yeah. Can you first of all my can you'll do a better job than I will. It's so kind rea- of a my, my kind of Achilles heel is science. But can you just my art is what what is that most people listening to this are cooks and chefs, so they probably know. It's, but but what what
1: is what does that describe? It's the name of the scientist who discovered the Browning reaction. And so for us, all the all of the caramelization, uh, uh, flavor comes from that caramelization in the croissants, mm-hmm. in the bread, we bake our bread pretty dark, mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the Queen Amman, especially in the Queen Amman, all the flavor is coming from that, mm-hmm. and also in the coffee. And so those two, and Anderson is in the last name of my partner. Yes. So actually some people think I, it's, uh my last name is Myard. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, but you said
3: before, was it a conscious decision to, uh, you didn't want to put your own name on the Yeah, on absolutely. The I mean, it's,
1: it's there. Uh, I joined the project super late. Okay. So they, they had already, uh, you know, they were, I was freelancing. I was trying to figure it out. I mean, this goes to the test. This goes to what the film's all about. I'm trying to figure out a way to like, Make this profession work with a family, yeah, and in a restaurant that's just really difficult, yeah. You know, and I don't think that it's the restaurant's fault. I think it's my fault. And really? Yeah, man, and yeah, for sure, man. I just, I but
3: restaurant. Not, I'm. We just met. I don't want to be rude, but I mean, restaurants are relationship killers. It's, it can be They're hard so, I know I mean I've got probably dozens of friends I know who couldn't sustain being a chef and being you know even just, forget kids married and I don't mean because of adultery I
1: just mean like because they were never around they were, had nothing to give when they were around and we do it to ourselves yeah I mean that's how I feel yeah I blame myself okay. like the reason I left the French Laundry when I got the opportunity to go back as the head pastry chef I spent that for two years you know I met my I signed the contracts to go back. Chef Keller gave me the opportunity to come back. And once the opening arose, when Courtney Schmidt decided to leave, mm-hmm. they called me and, and uh, they gave me the offer to, 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 to be the head pastry chef there. And I signed the contract six months ahead of time. And then I met my wife one month after I signed those contracts. Of course. <laughs> How and, else you know, would that have happened? Oh, you know, yeah, of course. <laughs> and so the, I didn't meet anyone in Copenhagen that whole damn yeah, time. Right. And it, it happens right then. And, you know, that's just, and that's just how it works. So then we, uh, you know, we started falling in love. We did fall in love. And then we were just going to do it long distance. She was going to move over. She was done with her PhD. She's going to move over. It's time. It's about two years into my tenure there. And I had planned to stay there for five years, minimum. Mm hmm. It's the greatest job of my life. Maybe I will never leave. Mm -hmm. You know, this organization is fantastic. It's the pinnacle. It's the top of the Mm -hmm. top. Why would I change anything? Mm -hmm. But then I just... Chef Keller told me that we were going to close the restaurant to do the remodel. Mm -hmm. And I had this fear that if I bring this woman over, this woman comes over to be with me, and I'm so in love with this restaurant and this opportunity that I just wouldn't be able to have both. And I wouldn't be able to sustain both. Not because of the restaurant. They love me. They've done everything for me. That chef Keller had done so much for me in my life up to that point. Uh, And he did even more by allowing me to go when I told him that I needed to go because this woman was so important to me. Um, I just knew I couldn't do both. Mm-hmm. I just knew I couldn't do both. And that was even, and then when I went to a mass, I went left, went with their blessing, left, went back to, to Copenhagen. I joined the team at a mass. Uh, you know, we're working there. And then we decided to have the kid. We started trying to have a child. We have Benjamin, our first child. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be gone during all his waking hours. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was going to work early and leaving work late on my own accord. Yeah. That just, that's what I was doing. Well, you didn't have another setting, right? No, exactly. It's just what it's going to be. Yeah. And I'm just going to, anything I'm going to do, I've said that in the film, you know, anything I'm going to do, I'm going to do it all the way. Well, if you're going to say that about work, then you got to say that about being a father. So I left the restaurant there so I could try to find something that would make them both work. Because mm-hmm. we're just, because uh, my dad was always there. Yeah. Always there. Amazingly. Amazingly. Absolutely right. And my mom was always there. And that's why I am who I am. And that's why I I am where I am. And I just had to do the same thing. So that's why this bakery works schedule works. Yeah. yeah if I get up at 3 in the morning or 4 in the morning, everybody's asleep. And... And if I get and if I get home, then I could get off by three, pick the kids up, we can eat yeah. dinner together, and then we can uh, go to bed. And but you know, man, with opening this second location, I'm doing it all over again to myself. I'm 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 trying to, I'm working too much, and 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 I'm falling into that trap again. And I've got to like step back and stop, and 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 realize why I'm I'm doing this and get Mm -hmm. back to the family. You know, it's, it just is. But do you not consider that a finite sort of spike, you know, until things get rolling and then. And then that's exactly right. But try to tell your wife that Mm. or try to tell your kids that, Right. you know, they don't care what's important in front of them is exactly is is what's happening right now. You know, we're just, and you know, you got to trust me. I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. But you could keep saying that. Yeah, you know, it and could always do. it can yeah. always be something. Sure, something can always happen. Something could always happen. Something would always happen. Mm-hmm. My wife's very understanding, but at the same same time, she knows she needs to be tough on me so that I realize what's important and I get my shit together.
3: Are you this is kind of a cliche, but it's very true of the business? Or do you, are you sort of an adrenaline junkie? Like, oh man, you are. I, I like there's I, something as grueling as the old your old life, not very old, but. Yeah. As this, yeah, there's a very knowing smile that just came across your face. I love it. But as grueling as that could be, it's like The Hurt Locker. <laughs> like it's, it's, people get addicted. It's like at the end of The Hurt. Do you ever see that movie? Yeah, I saw when it. When he yeah. goes voluntarily goes back, yeah. and you know he's in the bomb suit again. Exactly. That's what cooks are like. Oh, I love it.
1: Yeah, I thrive on it. You yeah. know, I mean. So I think
3: isn't that the fear for you? It's almost like an addiction.
1: No, but uh, it, yeah, absolutely. You're you're right. It could be an addiction for sure, but it also could just be uh, a sense of pride. Like sure. I did this. I did this. I can do this. I have done this. At the same time, you feel worth less because you're not still doing it. Right.
3: I get that. But I mean, the, when you talk about the fear of like, no, it's not just a spike, you know, getting the second place open. Yeah. What if I don't come back? Yeah. Right? I think the fear is that you'll get sucked back into that
1: adrenaline groove. I was trying, to, I was trying to decide where to go next and uh, what to do, what to open or this and that. And I used the phrase uh, with one place I was considering go out to pasture. And my wife just said to me, well, you're not gonna enjoy that. You're already saying it in a negative light just to just wipe that option off the table right there, you know, yeah. and...
3: So it's a very, it's, <laughs> tu- it's a very small needle that you, you're you trying to thread. Yeah. And it seems tra- like you kind of had, I don't know, it sounds like, it looks like from the film, it sounds like sitting here with you, like you've come as close as... it seems. Seems like you're honing
1: it. Oh man, I'm doing I'm doing it yeah. for sure. Yeah, and that's the new challenge. Maybe yeah. that's the maybe, maybe that's, that's the pressure. <laughs> maybe that's the that's the that's the uh, that's right. the bullets flying over your head is 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 trying to to, to navigate this and find what's yeah. going to make me happy. You know. Yeah. It's uh, but it is. I thrived in that atmosphere. There's a great documentary called uh, Noma at Boiling Point, and it's uh, Rene at his. Um, at his realist he's speaking Danish is a very long a uh, long time ago mm-hmm. long long time ago and uh, I think he got a lot of uh, of uh, he got a lot of uh, flack from the the Dan from the Danish people I think it was on Danish television mm-hmm. from them about like how he spoke to everybody and this and, that and the other and blah, blah blah but you just don't understand the kitchen or to me that's how I felt yeah. and I'm looking at this documentary because I'm watching it before I go to start there to see what this person is all about, see what mm-hmm. the chef's all about, see what this restaurant's all about and try to get a feel of what I'm about to walk into. Yeah. And man, after I finished watching it, I was I was I couldn't wait to be there. Yeah, cuz you want to
3: see if you can I, if I, if I can you have hang. the stuff. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. Totally. I was ready. This is not an unusual mindset for a cook.
1: And and I it was it, it was just I used the word earlier and I don't think there's better any better way to describe it thrilling yeah well I should probably let you go um, yeah, I think I have a something up man it's been I such a world no but, it's been um, such a whirlwind this has just been a fantastic experience and I still to this moment and even sitting here with you right now I know all the people you've interviewed in uh, throughout your career and I know the things that you've done and the things you've written Oh, well. And I still just think to myself, "Who am I? Who oh, am I? Who am I? Well, Who am I?" You thank know? you. And it's, it's just really exciting to be here and sit down with you. And well, uh, what a fantastic time in my life, and what a wonderful thing to leave for my children. I hope they listen to this uh, when they're able to understand. And I do just too. Know uh, know how much I love them, and uh, and know how excited I am to be going through this right now.
3: Well, I'm happy for the moment you're in. Thank you. Uh, I love the film. Again, it's uh, that's my jazz. A title that has a lot of meaning, as everybody just learned over the last hour plus. Um, thanks for sitting with me. It was great to meet you. Thank you for having me. And that's our show for this week. Caitlin, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Milton Abel the Second. Thank you, Milton, for that time when you were on your whirlwind trip through New York. I loved meeting you. I hope we will stay in touch, as we decided we would try to do after the interview. To Jeet Paul, our engineer at Heritage, thank you, Jeet, for splicing these things together. To the rest of the team at Heritage, thank you for your support, as always. To all of you out there in podcast land, thank you for listening. And a reminder, if you would like to keep up with the show, you can subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would leave us a rating or a review at the Apple's iTunes store, it does help people find the show and we would really appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back here soon on Andrew Talks to Chefs.
0: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.